Please, uh, if you would, uh, turn in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. We have been um, looking these past few weeks, as you know, to the post-resurrection appearances uh, of Jesus. And um, we're going to take a look at John 21 um, for the next three weeks, actually, because um, that chapter is considered... um, Uh, an epilogue of sorts to uh, the entire Gospel of John, Um, a summary, a conclusion of all that has gone on before. And so there's a lot to unpack there. And so uh, I'll spend some time this morning um, talking about fish. (laughs) And uh, Nathan next week, uh, well, Nathan, uh, you get to talk about sheep. Um, Well, Peter uh, and Jesus. And then the last week, uh, I want to take a look at the relationship between Peter and John and uh, what we might learn from that. But um, for this morning, um, chapter 21 opens with the disciples in Galilee, um, at least uh, some of them. And um, we shouldn't be surprised that they're there. Because if we remember uh, before Jesus died, after the Last Supper, as those disciples are walking up uh, toward the Mount of Olives and toward the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus tells them, he tells them that when he rises from the dead, that he will go before them into Galilee. Tells them that the night before he dies. And then a few days later, if you remember the story, the women go to the tomb and They look in the tomb and they see a young man dressed in white off to the right side, probably an angel. And that angel reminds the women to remind the disciples, hey, remember, um, go into Galilee. Jesus will go before you there and meet you there just as he said. And so we shouldn't be surprised they're there. Um, uh, Obediently, they make their way back up to Galilee and there they are hanging out, awaiting further instruction. And one night while they're there, uh, Peter uh, stands up as evening approaches and he says, you know what, I'm going fishing. And uh, some of the disciples at least say, you know what, Uh, that sounds good, we will too. And uh, so that's some context for our story this morning in John chapter 21. I'll begin reading at verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way, Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, uh, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have you any fish? And you can read a lot, I think, in the brevity of their reply and what the mood of the disciples are. No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Now, at that point, you might think, some of the disciples, at least, might start thinking, well, that sounds familiar. Because that happened on another occasion, at least. Uh, Luke 5 records early on in Jesus' ministry 
Jesus telling them to do something similar, throw the net on the other side, but uh, the disciples aren't quite getting it yet. But they did it, and when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. Uh, John finally thought, you know what, something smells fishy here. (laughs) It's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, you know, that testimony from someone else sometimes can shake us out and recognize it. As soon as Simon Peter heard someone say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. I wonder if he tried to walk on it this time. It doesn't say. He jumped right in. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Commentaries throughout the years... On this story, when they're asked to talk about it, they all like to focus on one thing, something that just jumps out, and if you're a seminary student or if you're a a biblical scholar, you like this sort of thing, one of the things that jumps out of the text is, why on earth was John so detailed about telling them exactly how many fish? Did you have that thought? I heard someone say, yeah, when you were reading it this morning. You know, he doesn't say there was a lot of fish. Doesn't say over 100. Doesn't even say about 150. You know, it's 153 fish. And that's raised the, the curiosity of um, many uh, over the centuries. And, you know, it should raise curiosity because biblical writers, both Hebrew and Greek culture, they love numbers and they love the symbolism of what those numbers stand for. And so in Greek and Hebrew literature, and the Bible is no exception, when you see a number, you ought to maybe ask, you know what, is there a symbolic meaning behind the number? Um, When I looked at it this week, uh, maybe you wouldn't be surprised, I was a little bit I counted maybe three dozen, three dozen different theories on why 153 specifically. So in the time we have left, we'll go through all three dozen. <laughs> you know, don't tempt me. It's, it's kind of fun. You know what? I'm going to try to breeze through a few just to, just to give you an idea, and I think it leads to a, a larger point that I'd like us to take away from, from this text uh, The most popular theory began with the early church father, Jerome, who argued that, you know what, people in Jesus' day understood there were 153 species of fish. And so if that was true, then when they read John's account, when they heard the story, 
well, maybe Jesus' miracle was then, you know what? Uh, in the context of Jesus saying to his disciples in the Gospels that I'm going to make you fishers of people, that, you know what, the, the 153, since it's all the species of fish, this is a sign now of the, uh, the Gentiles now being welcomed uh, into the family of God, and, 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 and so everyone now uh, is welcome to join in. And boy, that sure would resonate with biblical truth. That's absolutely true. Amen? The problem with Jerome's theory is when we check his sources for saying that they all thought there was 153 species of fish, his sources don't say that. Um, they come out around 157, so we're not quite sure what Jerome was thinking. We'll ask him one day. Um, but not being satisfied by Jerome, theologians continue to think, you know, why 153? And then there's this whole body of, uh, of speculation that the 153 is, uh, is one of those code numbers. Both Hebrew and Greek had a system, a coding system called gematria. Say gematria. There'll be a test after the service this morning. No. Yeah, what gematria did is uh, the Hebrew and the Greek alphabet assign numbers to their letters. So if we did it, A would be 1, Z would be 26. And then if you had words or phrases, you'd add those up. And whatever that total was, uh, that number would symbolize the phrase. And so the code thing is, you know the number, you try to guess the phrase. And boy, have scholars over the centuries tried to guess things that added up to 153. You know, for example, in Greek, Simon and fish total 153. So do sons of God in Hebrew. So do, so does church of love in Hebrew. And those theories are out there. You know, before we leave uh, Gematria, I'll give you one, which if I had to pick one, I might lean in this direction. It involves Gematria. You go back to Ezekiel chapter 47, the 10th verse, I think. And in that 10th verse, Ezekiel says, you know what, when the Messiah comes, there's going to be this great stream, this great river, and it's going to be full of large fish, and people will be lining along the shore. See, lots of these phrases appear in John 21. And they'll be able to cast in their nets and pull out large measures of fish, and that stream is going to stretch from En Gedi to En Eglayim. Now, if you take in Gliam, its gematria is 153. If you take in Getty, its gematria is 17. You say, so what? Someone say, so what? Glad you asked. You didn't know you were going to get a math uh, lesson this morning, did you? Well, if you're still with me, and I'll leave this soon, I promise. Um, some of you find it interesting? Okay, if you find it interesting, Enroll in seminary. You get to do this all the time. It's great. <laughs> 17 is the triangular number of 153. Triangular number means if you take 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 all the way to plus 17, guess what the total is? 153. Good. And oh, on this discovery, um, all of a sudden the church fathers went off on 17. Augustine 
noted the relationship between 17 and 153, and, and he concluded the 153 fish are 153 believers that through the seven signs of the Holy Spirit started to obey the Ten Commandments, because seven and ten is 17. Do you start to get the idea you could make this into anything you wanted it to be? <laughs> and then others thought, you know what? 12 plus 5 is 17. And those are big Bible numbers. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples, five books of the law of Moses. So all sorts of uh, ideas about that. Last one I'll leave you with, uh, Cyril of Alexandria. He threw the whole gematria thing out, and he simply said, you know what? Here's what 153 is. 100 Gentiles, 50 Jews, plus the Trinity. 153. You know, I meant to spend about a half hour researching that this week, but it's like I started chasing, uh, you know, rabbits down rabbit trails of all these 153s. And what made it even more confusing for me, um, or at least uh, I'll share a story with you because my head's still spinning um, over this. As I'm entrenched in 153 and wondering how much am I going to share, I'm probably sharing too much with you this morning, forgive me, about 153, my son Ben texts me. And he texts me to tell me about a golf shot that he hit in a driving hailstorm in Michigan. And so my head, my head is literally uh, swimming with this 153. Okay, three people got it. That's enough, you know. If one gets it, I, you know, it's a great success. And Ben sends me the following text. Dad, I hit a six iron in the hail and into this wind 153 yards. <laughs> to within five feet of the pin, he says to me. Not kidding! And I just I looked at the phone and I went, What are the chances? What are the chances it was 153? What are the chances that he remember? What are the chances he tells me? You know, he's pretty soft-spoken about how he's doing golf-wise. You know, he goes about his business, but at that time, at that moment, he decides to text me. I hit a six-iron, 153 degrees in a state, or yards in a, in a store. I'm like, <laughs> now, to me, you know, you, you may interpret it differently, but what was on my heart at that time is I started to laugh because those moments for me in life, maybe for you too, it's like, you know what, that's a God moment where he just sort of winks at you sometimes and says, I I'm with you. I'm with you with this uh, 153 thing. So now, given that text, I have a new 153 theory. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, you just be polite and say, yeah, I'd like to hear it. My new 153 theory is that if you go fishing in a hailstorm, use a six iron. <laughs> Catch a lot of fish. Ray Brown, those of you who are uh, serious uh, students of the New Testament uh, know Ray Brown. If you don't, you should. One of the most well-respected um, across all different uh, um, uh, stripes and spots of theologians and denominations. One of the most insightful and well-respected Bible commentators of all time. I'll let him close on the 153 because uh, he was giving a lecture, the story goes, uh, well after he wrote his exhaustive commentary on the book of John. And in his lecture, I think he probably tells us all that we can know for sure about the 153. 
and maybe gives us some good advice uh, when it comes to um, biblical interpretation. Here's what Brown said in his lecture. I had a dream in which a voice of heaven spoke to me, and it said, you fool! The reason I said there were 153 fish in John 21 is that there were 153 fish. (laughs) And that's probably all we can know for sure. And you know what? I mean, think about it. Uh, These uh, disciples, which you've heard from me before, best biblical historical evidence, uh, all except Peter are probably under 21 best evidence. So a bunch, of team, a bunch of teens are in a boat, and they're fishing all night long. They don't catch a thing. And all of a sudden, the casting net goes out, and they pull in 100, and they pull in 153 huge fish, biggest all-time world record Sea of Galilee thing, right? Well, these kids, what, they drag that thing ashore. You catch the biggest thing you've ever seen or ever heard of, you're already thinking, I can't wait to tell Chaim over there in Cana. He's never going to believe it. So you, this is a world record thing. What are you going to do? You're going to count them, aren't you? I asked Ben, when I, I called him on the phone after he texted me, I said, bud, you're never going to get what? He says, what? I said, after like dealing with 153 fish and you hit your shot 153 yards. He said, dad, that's so cool. I said, I know. And so then I asked Ben as we were talking about, I started talking about the message this morning with him. I said, you tell me, bud, what, if you and your friends are fishing and you catch all these fish and you drag that biggest world-time record ashore, what's the first thing you're going to do with the fish? And he said, without hesitation, they'd eat them. <laughs> and I said, um, I said, all right, you know what? I'll see you later. I don't think I can use it. No, I No, but they, you know, actually I said to him, well, okay, before they eat them, what are they going to do? And he said, oh, they count them. So maybe that's why uh, 153. Um, We'll ask John one day why 153. Um, Are you keeping a list of things you want to ask the biblical writers and characters? I've got one got a long list. Figure we have eternity, so we'll have a lot of time to talk. I hope we do. And I'd love to ask them someday, hey, John, why would you give us 153? You know, until then, everyone agrees this story is there to, uh, to emphasize the work of the church now that Jesus is alive, that we really are to be fishers of people, that we're too in the way we live our lives and all that we do. Tell them, tell them, tell them. Tell them about Jesus. Show them who he is. Tell them about the love of God so that they too might join God's loving family. Put them all in a net. Drag them across the parking lot into our churches. No, no, don't do that. But you get what I mean? And for me, one huge takeaway, see what you think of the extraordinary catch of fish and then uh, we'll get to our, uh, our baptisms, a different kind of sea. <laughs> but for me, here's one extraordinary takeaway uh, that I take away from this story. See what you think. Remember, this epilogue of John is, is summarizing what's gone on before in the gospel. Well, if you take a look back in the gospel, one of its key themes, in fact, Jesus says this to his disciples in the context of One of the I am's, I am the vine, you are the branches. 
And he tells those guys at that time, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's one takeaway, at least for me, from the story this morning. Those guys were fishing their tails off all night long, and they didn't catch a thing. In fact, if you look in the, all the Gospels and all the New Testament, guess how many fish those fishermen disciples ever caught as recorded in the New Testament without Jesus? How many? None. Like the worst fishermen all time. <laughs> Apart from me, you can do nothing. Boy, that lesson had to come home for them that day and that morning, didn't it? How about for us? In church, in ministry, in life, you try, you try, you try. You try to convince people of, uh, of who Jesus is and that God loves them and in doing it, you get so caught up with the business of it that maybe you, uh, sometimes you tend to leave uh, Jesus unrecognized over there on the shore. Boy, it's a lesson to stay close to him, isn't it? In prayer. It's not a lesson to try harder and persevere. I've heard that taught on this before. Boy, you just got to keep trying. Okay, that's elsewhere in the text. But here it's not a lesson on on our effort, but it's a lesson, it's a call for more faith, for more trust, trust in the Holy Spirit's power to still work through us yet today. Do you? Trust that even if it sounds peculiar or odd what Jesus asks us to do, trust him and do it. And when we do, oh, 153 fish. Joining me in a second uh, on the platform are, I think, 15 people being baptized today. Praise God. Give them a hand for being here today. And I'm... They're here today because they've realized um, that apart from God they can do nothing. And they've realized and they've been dumbfounded by the love of God. If you noticed in our story this morning, the net didn't break. In Luke 5, the first story, it tore. This one held. Maybe it held because now the resurrected Jesus has completed God's act of love. And it echoes back to another verse in John that maybe you've heard. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, will not perish but have eternal life. No more tears in the net. Jesus' work is complete and God will call all and all who respond to him. And you know, um, when the news of uh, Boston broke this week, you guys, one of my first thoughts, um, you know, I thought, oh, man, your baptism uh, is today. And um, forever it's going to be linked with that. And I thought, oh, rats. But then I thought, how appropriate. Because people who are willing to stand up and stand out and say, I love Jesus, and to live their lives in light of God's love for them, 
to reach the world for him. It's the only hope the world has. It's God's, it's the only absolute answer to the evil and the chaos in the world. So I hope you take that with you today too. As they join us and get in place on the platform, uh, would you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, you guys can come on up. Father in heaven, uh, thank you for the joy of celebrating baptism this morning. Thank you for your story, Father. Your story, which among other things, reminds us um, that apart from you, we can do nothing. and reminds us of your great love for us. Father, we ask uh, that you would keep us close, that um, the Holy Spirit in us would keep us um, from allowing you to drift off to the shore someplace where we can't recognize it's you any longer. Help us, Father, because we know apart from you, um, we won't even reach one, not even one with your love. Father, thank you for the people here today that uh, are willing to join the many, the millions throughout history that have followed you and now follow your son in bringing this good news, this gospel to the world. Re-equip them again this morning with a fresh anointing of your Holy Spirit. Give them the humble boldness to indeed, um, so help them, God, So help them, Lord, please help them to live their life in love for you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.